What is a scientist? Well, it depends on who you ask. Eccentric geniuses, ivory tower elitists, humorless robot people, human encyclopedias, you can find a practically endless number of perspectives on what defines a scientist. And there's a bit of truth in all of them. But before everything else, scientists are people. I think a lot of the time scientists have a habit of um, we take these very dry concepts or very artificial concepts and then we give them a dose of humanity. Welcome to Life Science, a new mini-series produced by Carry the One Radio in collaboration with the Quantitative Biosciences Institute at the University of California, San Francisco. Over the course of this series, we'll follow one scientist's journey from the conception of a project researching HIV to its publication in a scientific journal and beyond. Including all of the ups and downs that are a natural part of the scientific process. We, the producers, are early career scientists ourselves, so we'll try to offer a little insight into what it means to be a scientist along the way, through the lens of one story. The story of how David Gordon embarked on a project that might change the way we develop treatments for, well, pretty much any infectious disease. I'm Alina Kostinovska. I'm Katie Cabral. And I'm Ben Mansky. You'll be hearing from all three of us at different points throughout this series. And you'll also be hearing it straight from the scientist's mouth. My name is David Gordon. I'm a postdoctoral scholar in the Krogan Lab at UCSF. I work at the UCSF Quantitative Biosciences Institute and also at the Gladstone Institute for Virology and Immunology. David's been a postdoctoral scholar, abbreviated as postdoc, in Dr. Nevin Krogan's lab for around five and a half years. That means he knows what he's talking about. But what does it mean to be a postdoc exactly? Well, it's not the most straightforward thing. On paper, it means that you've finished getting your doctorate, usually a PhD, and are getting ready for whatever comes next in your career. They're supposed to last from two to six-ish years, and are a chance for a scientist to accomplish a, a few things. Things like publish another paper or two, or to learn the ropes of a new field that they might want to work in, or to get experience teaching, or mentoring graduate students or undergraduates. Basically, it's a chance for them to do whatever it takes to be competitive in the increasingly tough job market. Whether they want to be a professor, or a researcher at a biotech or pharmaceutical company, or something else. So it constructs this weird, like, uh, interstitial space between studenthood and employee status where you're still a trainee in some respects, but you're really trying to strike out on your own. But even striking out on your own is not such a simple process. In the first place, which is not obvious from the beginning. No, this is the skill. This is the skill that is special. How do you pick something that's that you can have a bit of green turf that's not explored and isn't too obvious, so you're not open up to too much. Um, you're not opened up to too much uh, com competition because nobody wants to deal with that. Yeah. Um, but on the same token leverages your strengths and certain things you've done before perhaps methods you're familiar with or techniques but is enough of has enough novelty uh that it's not too obvious yeah that can be challenging just to figure out what is new enough but not so new that you won't get funding for it and not yeah. so uh, common that someone else is going to do it first yeah. exactly 
but for all the stresses that come with being a postdoc. It's an important part of the process. It's a, a taste of independence and the joy of discovery. And for most postdocs, it's worth it. I love academia, the idea of understanding critical questions, complex questions, and, and spending whole days just thinking about how to explain something that you've observed. I find that in a bizarre way romantic. Plus, postdocs do important work. David, as we mentioned, studies HIV. And you're probably aware that HIV is a virus. But what is a virus? There's actually some disagreement over whether viruses are alive, since unlike other living things, they literally cannot survive without a host. Even parasites can live out in the wild if they absolutely need to, but not viruses. And it lacks the machinery to replicate itself. And so it has to go into our cells, take our machinery, and hijack it, rewire the cell in order to express its own genetic code and replicate copies of itself. We can think of a virus infection like an invading army. And an invading army first has to establish a bridgehead to stage its assault. The way HIV does this is by binding to surface receptors on your cell and then entering the cell. HIV specifically makes its home inside T cells, which are essential for the immune system to work properly. I actually don't know, is that because HIV preferentially infects immune cells or they're just more affected by the process? Like, what's the, yeah, what's the main target of HIV? So HIV stands for Human Immunodeficiency Virus. Yes. And the reason that it's called that is because when the infection takes its course, it results in something called AIDS, which is Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. The virus preferentially infects uh, T cells in the, um, in the immune system. And so over time, those T cells will be depleted and that will lead to dysfunction of the immune system. So to answer your question, yes, the, the virus needs to infect these immune cells in order to uh, replicate and survive in the body. And then if this was an army analogy, the army uses careful tactics to reach strategically critical positions from which it can exert control. As the invading force establishes control, it changes things to suit itself. It's gonna hijack information and communication systems. That's gonna interfere with defensive coordination. It'll repurpose local resources to suppress dissent and to favor its own goals which includes the manufacturing of tools for new combat forces and further conquests. It's also gonna take over transportation and logistical hubs to assemble, equip new forces to conquer new lands. HIV infects a single cell and makes its home inside the host cell's genome. There, it'll hijack the cell's communication systems, suppress the immune factors that would normally fight it off, and use the cell's resources to replicate itself. It'll hide out there inside the cell until it has enough of an army to burst out of the cell and then go infect more cells. But if we could use military intelligence to identify the key elements in HIV's plan for attack, we could sabotage them before it even started the assault. We could put in place strategic defenses, or at least plan strategic defenses, to prevent invasion. And that's how a lot of HIV drugs work. Um, blocking surface receptor availability. So you can't ever have that bridgehead to stage the attack. 
imagine if the new military had released their forces, but you could sabotage them. Um, this, this, this analogy fits a lot of our current strategies, but we can do more. There are two main types of drugs that could be used to treat HIV. One type of drug, which is the only type currently used for treatment, targets the HIV virus itself. So one class of these drugs binds to viral proteins, and it's going to inhibit those proteins from doing their work. The classes are reverse transcription inhibitors, which will inhibit HIV reverse transcription from turning the HIV RNA into DNA. The second class is HIV integrase inhibitors, which will inhibit the HIV DNA from integrating into the host genome. And that's where infection of a cell really set, takes hold. And the third class is HIV protease inhibitors, which sabotage, essentially, the budding new HIV that's being released from an infected cell. But the other type of drug that could be developed, at least in theory, could target human proteins that interact with the virus and inadvertently help it to survive. And these are drugs that bind to human proteins required for virus infection. And there are certain common threads when you look at the way that viruses interact with cells. David's research aims to understand this host-virus interface. Basically, what human genes does HIV hijack to its advantage? How do they normally interact with each other? And how does HIV change that? But maybe the toughest question is which of the human host genes are necessary for HIV to survive, but are not needed for the human cells to be healthy? Basically, which genes can we target with medicine that will stop the HIV but won't kill human cells? Uh, many of the genes which HIV seems to grab serve essential roles in the cell. There's the idea of uh, therapeutically targeting human genes uh, in order to block virus infection. But along with that idea, you have to be very careful to target the right human genes, whereby uh, you would specifically impact genes the virus needs, not genes you need. So if you're dealing with an army invading a village and you say, take away the village's entire food supply, sure, the army is going to be stopped, but so will the villagers. Now say the army needs to get to high ground to stage their next attack, but the villagers don't really care if they can go up on that hill or not. So you block access to high ground and you stop the army without hurting the village the otherwise healthy cell that the virus has invaded. Many times when I interfere with a gene function that's important for HIV, the cells will suffer as a result. Um, those proteins may uh, on some level interact with HIV, but you just don't want to mess with them unless you're very, very specific about what you're doing and, um, and test that very carefully before you ever try to use that as a therapeutic. Over the past few decades, scientists have put a lot of work into figuring out what sets of host genes can change HIV's ability to infect cells. Most of these studies were done with a similar technique to the one that now David is employing, RNA interference, abbreviated as RNAi. Generally speaking, genes work by telling a cell what proteins to make and how much of them to make, and so on. These proteins can have functions from allowing a cell to communicate with other cells, to clearing away waste, to moving things around, and more. Nearly everything cells do happens through the action of proteins. To make the right proteins, cells use single-stranded RNA to relay messages from the gene, the DNA, to the cell's protein factories. 
So the main concept in how a gene leads to some function in a cell is first you have double-stranded DNA. The gene. That goes to single-stranded RNA. Which is the messenger. To the functional protein. So RNA eye molecules are engineered to match up with the message for a particular gene's RNA. They stick to it and they form a double-stranded RNA complex. And since cells don't normally have double-stranded RNA, this really freaks them out. And so the cell will send its disposal machinery to go cut it up. And this destroys the message coming from that gene and prevents it from ever becoming a functional protein. So it targets that middle step in DNA to RNA to protein, letting us mess with the output of individual genes to see what will happen without all of the trouble and possible side effects of changing the actual genes themselves. Uh, there were genome-wide RNA interference screens, we call them, where individual genes were depleted one by one. And those screens sought to understand exactly which genes were mediating infection in cultured human cells and the results didn't match up. Not an uncommon thing to find in science. If you go into the literature... Okay, so we should mention, in a scientific context, we use the word literature as a kind of vague monolithic term referring to all the research papers that have ever been published on any given topic. And the literature is a huge, living, breathing, constantly evolving thing. Every time some new evidence is found to support one claim or another, it's added to the literature in the form of a paper that is published in an academic journal. You can go Google PubMed and pop pretty much any term into its search bar, and you might be surprised by the hundreds to thousands of papers that come up. Some of those are bound to be contradictory. And in cases of contradictory research, it's up to the scientists to puzzle out which pieces of evidence are trustworthy and which might not be. Science is full of contradictions. Researchers end up with results that don't match up for so many reasons. There's a ton of different techniques that we can use to ask the same biological questions, but depending on the technique that you decide to use, you might end up with a different answer. But when the answer is the same no matter what kind of experiment is designed to address it, then it's probably a, a pretty trustworthy conclusion. But even with the same results, different scientists can come to different conclusions. Like an umpire trying to figure out whether a ball landed out of bounds, scientists are constantly trying to set thresholds that aren't always actually that clear cut. And most results are at least a little ambiguous. For scientists though, these contradictions and ambiguities are kind of like um, opportunities. They force us to challenge what we think we know. It means that we need really strong evidence to back up the claims that we make. But even with good evidence, interpretation can be really tough. In David's case, he's been looking at these RNAi screens that don't implicate the same sets of genes in HIV infection, but why wouldn't their results match up? A lot of those studies didn't overlap in terms of their uh, results, but that could be explained by using different RNA interference libraries, using different types of cultured human cells, using different variants of the HIV virus. And so the discrepancies between the studies could be explained in that context. A larger property of those experiments that we're trying to improve on also had to do with how you functionally cluster the gene functions under study. So let's say you perturb a gene and you see HIV infection go down. You perturb another gene, you see infection go down. You have no idea if those genes are working together or how they're working together. That's not to say we haven't learned from these sorts of studies. They still provide valuable insight into some complicated ways HIV works, and they help doctors figure out the best ways to treat patients. 
But alone, no one class of drugs is enough. Instead of targeting just one facet of infection, doctors will prescribe drugs that hit multiple key points where HIV interacts with the host. And the reason they do that is to avoid the potential that the virus can mutate away from that drug. And the HIV does mutate, so it can do that, and it does do that. Um, but if you have two or even three drugs, if you hit uh, with multiple drugs these pathways, you give the virus less opportunity to evolve away from any particular one. The more we know about the ways HIV interacts with human cells, the better we can design treatments to stop HIV from multiple angles. That's where David's approach is really innovative. David is doing a more refined, comprehensive form of these RNAi screens than has ever been done before. He's not just testing genes one by one by one, but instead is hitting combinations of genes to see how they interact with each other to affect the susceptibility of cells to HIV infection. And beyond just the effects of genes, he's actually looking to see how the products of the genes, the proteins, physically interact with one another to change the way that HIV can replicate itself and infect other cells. The techniques that he's developed could be an unprecedented resource to help us figure out how viruses in general rely on host genes. If someone swapped out HIV with another virus, they might be able to pinpoint particular genes that multiple viruses depend on. I think that as a pipeline for understanding virus-host interactions, this is an important set of concepts that we can use for other viruses. So it is my hope that this study will just be the first study of many to map these sort of physical and genetic interactions so that we can gain greater knowledge of not just HIV, but many other pathogens. In order for David to use the techniques he developed to study HIV host gene interactions, he had to set up a massive experiment. Like, really, really big. That's about the size of it. So does anybody have a calculator? How many is that? Three, 360 times 420 is 151,200 combinations times four, because we did it in quadruplicate. So that's 604,800 specific co combinations. And that's just for the genes we depleted, the combinations we tested. Including drug screens. Or... Yeah, so if we add in drugs and mutant viruses, that's another 40 times 360. That's another 14,400 combinations running quadruplicate, so that's 57,600 experimental combinations we ran. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one day the robot broke. Oh, no. <laughs> what do you do? Tune in next month for Life Science Part 2, Methods. To find out how David Gordon built his enormous HIV host gene interaction experiment. And yes, there will be robots. Many thanks to David Gordon for working with us on this piece. You'll continue to hear from him and about his work over the course of this series. This episode was produced by Katie Cabral, Ben Mansky, and Alina Kostyanowska with help from the team at Carry the One Radio in collaboration with the Quantitative Biosciences Institute at UCSF. Thanks for listening and stay curious.